1 Corinthians 11 and verses 2 to 16 in um, the church bible that's on page 1152 1 Corinthians 11 2 to 16 Paul writes to the Corinthian church I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is 2 to 16. And here's a question for you. Would it be sinful for me to put this on my head and preach? And when we were praying, was it sinful that... Anna Mae, with her beautiful scarf there, didn't put it over her head. They're the kind of questions that we have, isn't it, when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. Well, I'm not going to answer those questions tonight. You'll be very disappointed to know. But I will try and answer them next Sunday. Because I think this passage needs two sermons. Two sermons. Someone was asking me, oh, so you're preaching on head coverings tonight, are you? I said, no, I'm preaching on 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. I'm going to preach the Bible. I'm going to preach what's in front of me. So let's begin with verse 2. And we'll work our way through. I don't think we're going to get further than verse 3, by the way, tonight. But that'll be a good foundation for us to try and answer that question. Is it sinful for Dav to preach with a cap on? And is it sinful for the ladies not to put scarves over their heads when we're praying? So let's begin with verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. What do we read there? (coughs) I praise you 
for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. So let's pause just with the first three words, really. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to the local church at Corinth. And in chapter 11, verse 2, he writes, I praise you. And it's a bit like, oh, that's nice, isn't it? (laughs) It's nice that he's given them some praise now. And I think that's a lesson for us. Because he has been rebuking them quite strongly and they needed those rebukes. But a lesson for us is so important that we praise people when it is deserved, isn't it? So the Apostle Paul in verse 2 says, I praise you. Well, he started his epistle off quite nicely, didn't he? Can we remember how the book of 1 Corinthians began? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 4 to 9. So he starts the epistle off very nicely, doesn't he? Full of praise and thanksgiving. What do we read there? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. I always thank my God for you, local church at Corinth, because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's a lovely way, isn't it, to begin a letter. You'd love to have received that letter, wouldn't you? But then, from verses 10 onwards, he starts putting the boot in, doesn't he? He's telling them, local church at Corinth, you're divided, you're quarrelling. And then in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, you're worldly and immature. And then in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, you're arrogant. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, he's saying, you're actually proud of the fact that there's incest being committed in your church. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, he rebukes them that they're taking each other to court. And then in chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, he's telling them that they're not honouring God with their bodies. And then in chapters 8 and 10, he's rebuking them that they're destroying weak Christians in the congregation by eating in an idol's temple. And in chapter 9, verses 1 to 18, he gives them a little rebuke for not paying him for doing his work of preaching the gospel. And he's about to give them even more rebukes, isn't he? About the terrible way they're conducting the Lord's Supper. And he's about to rebuke them about their sort of strange views about the resurrection that some in the church didn't believe in the general resurrection. So he's about to rebuke them about that false teaching as well. But I love the fact he's so pastoral, isn't he, and warm, the Apostle Paul. Do you find that? In verse 2, he does say, I praise you. 
I praise you for remembering me in everything. What does that mean? What does that mean when the Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth, I praise you for remembering me in everything? Well, I think the answer for that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. What do we read there? Now, for the matters you wrote about. So when the Apostle Paul is saying, I praise you for remembering me in everything, the Apostle Paul is basically saying, oh, thanks for writing to me. Thanks for contacting me, asking me for advice and help. (coughs) And it is nice, isn't it? Do you find that so nice when people do ask you, look, uh, have you got a moment? I'd love to ask you some advice on something. It's nice, isn't it, when someone remembers you, someone is struggling with something, and they think, oh, do you know, I'm not going to struggle on my own. I'm going to ask for some advice. So even though the Apostle Paul rebuked the church at Corinth for being proud, they, they humbled themselves as well, didn't they? It's quite a big thing, actually, isn't it, to say, look, I'm struggling. Will you help me? Oh, I don't understand something. I remember when I was in school, I used to hate asking for help. Anyone else like that? Don't feel, oh, Nathan's putting his hand. Always ask for help in school. Don't worry about asking questions. It doesn't matter how silly it might sound. You've got to ask for help. So I find the church at Corinth obviously wrote to the Apostle Paul or contacted him in some way and asked him, can you help us? We're struggling with a few issues here about marriage and, you know, should we eat meat sacrificed to idols and things like that? But then it goes on. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. So what is that? What are the traditions that the Apostle Paul passed on to the local church at Corinth? Because sometimes you think, well, traditions can be bad, can't they? Sort of going into a routine or getting into a bit of a rut. Well, traditions isn't the same as sort of our traditions. Because sometimes in churches we sort of say, that's the way we've always done it and that's the way we'll always do it. It's, it's really bad when you hear that sort of language in churches. Now, that's the way we've done it and that's the way we'll always do it if it's not based on the word of God. But I think traditions meant something else. And I think 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15 help us here. What do we read there? So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And can you see the footnote there, C? So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, or traditions. It's kind of interchangeable, teachings and traditions. So really, what it's saying is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. But then the question is, what were the teachings that the Apostle Paul passed on to the local church at Corinth? What was the teachings that the Apostle Paul passed on to the Corinthians? And it's so helpful to be reminded of this. This is the teachings that the Apostle Paul passed on to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and the second half of verse 1 and verse 2. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you 
the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's the teaching that he passed on to the church at Corinth, first and foremost. And then in chapter 15, we find out a bit more about the teachings that he passed on to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, this is 1 to 4. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you were saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So what are the teachings that the Apostle Paul passed on to the Corinthians? It's the gospel, isn't it? The gospel. And verse 1 tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 1 tells us, that the Corinthians received this gospel and they were standing on the gospel. And you might be thinking, have you done a mistake there, Paul? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 1, have you done a mistake there? Are they really standing on the gospel, this church at Corinth? Have they really received the gospel? Are they really standing on the gospel? This church at Corinth who are divided, who are quarreling, who are worldly, who are immature. This church at Corinth who are arrogant, who are proud of the fact that incest was being committed in their church. This church at Corinth who were taking each other to court. This church at Corinth who were dishonouring God with their bodies. This church at Corinth who were destroying weak members in the church by going to the, uh, the temple to eat sort of food sacrificed to idols. This church at Corinth who weren't paying you properly, who weren't paying you at all for doing your work of preaching the gospel. It's a bit like, what? But the Apostle Paul says, no, they're standing on the gospel. They're still called a gospel church. And you're like, how? Well, I think the first thing we need to realise is they were sinners, weren't they? The church at Corinth were sinners. They always had been sinners, they were sinners, and they were always going to be sinners. And so are we. We are all sinners here tonight, aren't we? And do you know what? Every gospel church that I know of have got something in their history that they're ashamed of, haven't they? You can even think of good Bible-believing churches, good gospel churches. There's something in their history that they're ashamed of. Or maybe there's something going on in their church right now that they're ashamed of. And maybe in this church, maybe something happened recently or years ago or a couple of decades ago that sort of make us wince when we maybe think about it, doesn't it? Sin does need to be dealt with when it happens in the church. Sin does need to be repented of when it happens in the church. 
But when sin is committed in a church, it doesn't mean that that church is now disqualified from being a gospel church. All it means that that church needs to deal with the sin and it needs to repent of the sin, doesn't it? I mean, if someone could read about your life and my life, like I would like to consider myself a gospel man. I'm sure all of us here this evening would like to think of ourselves as gospel people. But if someone could read everything that we've thought of this week, if someone could read about everything that we've said this week and everything that we've done this week, Maybe some people might think, are you sure that he's a gospel person? Are you sure she's a gospel person? No, we are saved by grace alone, aren't we? And we are kept by grace, aren't we? By God's grace. When there's sin, we're to confess it, we're to repent of it and renounce it. But let's go on to verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. and And the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. And that is the key verse. That is the key verse for understanding 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, is all about submission to authority. It's not about head coverings. So head coverings is the practice, but the principle is submission to authority. Does that make sense? So head coverings is the practice, but the principle is submission. So head covering is just a symbol but the reality is submission it's the same with the Lord's Supper that we uh, partook of this morning the bread and the juice are just symbols (laughs) what is the reality the reality is remembering Jesus and his death for us isn't it you know we could do the Lord's Supper in the most sort of uh, perfect way practically, can we? We could say, oh, let's make sure that we've got a table. You know, let's not just serve it off the floor, off a chair or something. Let's make sure we've got a table, because the Bible does talk about a table. Let's make sure that we've got one loaf, because the Bible talks about one loaf. And let's get rid of the tiny little glass cups, and let's have one cup. So you could get all the practical things perfect about the Lord's Supper, couldn't you? But the reality could be a million miles away. If there are people who are eating of the bread and drinking of the cup who don't trust in Jesus. If there are people who are eating the bread and drinking of the cup who are living in deliberate sin, who aren't penitent, the symbol might be right, But the reality, the actual principle, could be all to squiff, couldn't it? And we could sort of make rules, couldn't we, as a church, about sort of um, 
head coverings, couldn't we? We could write into the church rules, a preacher or someone in the... If, if a man is preaching, or if a man is praying, he's not allowed to wear a cap. And uh, if a woman is sharing a verse of scripture, or giving a testimony, or if she's praying, she's got to have her head covered. You could have all the rules down to the best details. But, if the women aren't submitting to the men, and if the men aren't leading, aren't looking like Jesus, then the principle's gone out of the window, isn't it? The practice could be perfect, but if the principle is all wrong, isn't it? If the reality is all wrong, then it's absolutely pointless, isn't it? You could stick to all the tiny little details, but if the heart isn't right then it's just hypocrisy, isn't it? But what about um, that line there? The head of the woman is man. So is Paul a woman hater? Is Paul a misogynist? (laughs) Is Paul misogynistic? Well, he's obviously not, is he? Because even in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he sort of expects women to pray, doesn't he? He says, I I love the fact that you pray. I love the fact that you prophesy. He gives them that freedom, doesn't he? He expects women to pray and prophesy. And then what do we read in verse 11? He's obviously got a very high uh, view of women. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So he's basically saying we wouldn't even exist without women, would we? He's got a very high view of women, isn't it? Women are amazing. None of us would be here if it wasn't for women. And what did he write to the churches in Galatia in chapter 3, verse 28? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? It says you're all one. Men, women, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And it's quite interesting. Who was the first convert? Who was the first person the Apostle Paul led to the Lord Jesus Christ in Europe? In a place called Philippi. Lydia. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And... um, Who does the Apostle Paul always talk about? This sort of missionary couple from Corinth who went to sort of plant a church in Rome. Priscilla and Aquila, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And who's mentioned first? Priscilla. I've got some friends like that. Have you got any friends and you mention the woman's name first, isn't it? It's quite interesting, isn't it? Priscilla and Aquila. And he always makes that point of mentioning Priscilla first. And uh, we could be here all night sort of listing all the women that the Apostle Paul praises and he gives mention of. Um, I suppose one obvious one is Romans 16. He talks about Phoebe, isn't it? The deaconess in the church in Rome. And he tells Titus to teach the older women. He isn't saying, oh, just, just forget about the women. They're, they're just troublemakers or they're dumb or they're useless. He doesn't do that at all, does he? He says, Titus, be, be sure now to teach the older women in the church at Crete. 
And that was countercultural. That was majorly countercultural to teach the Bible to women. Uh, because this is what um, the rabbis say. The rabbis said, better to burn the Torah than teach it to women. So when the synagogue saw uh, Titus and Paul teaching the Bible to women, they were like, oh, what are you doing? It's better to burn the Torah than to teach it to women. If we go back to uh, verse 3 then, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, the head of, w- of the woman is man. So one uh, point people make is, well, Paul is talking about the culture of the day. He's talking about the culture of the day. He's talking about the the culture of Corinth 2,000 years ago, where the man was the head of the woman. That is totally irrelevant for today, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Is that still relevant for today? Can we still say that the man is the head of the woman? Well, I find whenever we come across something in the Bible and you're thinking, is it still relevant for today? There's two questions we should ask. Is it in creation? And is it in the cross? Have you heard about that? It's a a great way of studying the Bible, isn't it? Does creation and the cross teach and practice this principle? So does creation and the cross practice, uh, sort of teach the, the principle and the practice of man being the head of woman? So creation basically says it was there, it was there in creation, therefore it is now. And what does the cross teach? Jesus has done, therefore do. So... Was it there in creation, this principle and this practice of man being the head of woman? Uh, There's a lot of principles and practices from creation that we still do today, isn't it? Like work is a creation mandate, isn't it? And we all know the importance of work. Rest, isn't it, is a creation mandate. Marriage, reproduction... And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, yeah, it's a creation mandate. The man being the head of the woman. What do we read uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 to 10? For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. Because of the angels. What's that about? I'll, I'll just like touch on that quickly. Why on earth does Paul bring up angels here? Well, the angels watch over the church, don't they? We know that in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10. That the angels are getting excited about the gospel being proclaimed by the church, isn't it? Sort of the angels sort of look at the church and say, what, the gospel is going out to the nations? Whoa, we didn't see that one come in. And they get really excited, don't they? And 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12 says that even angels long to look into these things. And the angels even need to know their place, don't they? There's like even a hierarchy in the angelic realm, isn't it? There are sort of chief angels, 
So they're supposed to know their place. And even angels can fall. Even angels can forget what their place is. And they could try and sort of take over from God. That's what happened to Lucifer, wasn't it? So the angels are even sort of learning lessons from the church. So when they see sort of um, the order of authority and submission all over the place in the church, it just sort of confuses the angels even. So this principle and practice of man being the head of woman is seen in creation. Because woman was made out of man. And then all the jokes come out, don't they? said, well, you're just a spare rib, aren't you? Sort of women or something like that. <laughs> Which is awful, isn't it? That's why I love this quote by Matthew Henry. You've, anyone who's been to a Christian wedding have probably heard this quote. Have you, you've probably heard it, haven't you? In Matthew, uh, Matthew Henry sort of say, says this quote about um, a woman being created out of man. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him. Not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him. But out of his side to be equal with him. And under his arm to be protected. And near his heart to be beloved. Isn't that wonderful? You could do a whole wedding sermon on that, can you? But is this principle of man being the head of woman... And a woman submitting to the man seen in the cross. So we, it's, it's clear in creation, what about the cross? Because if you really want to understand submission and authority, you have to go to the cross, don't you? Go to the cross to understand submission and authority. What do we read in uh, Ephesians 5, 21 to 33? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless and then from verse 28 we read this in this same way husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself after all no one ever hated their own body but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So women are certainly not second-class citizens, are they? Especially in the church. Women are not second-class citizens. 
In the same way, Jesus isn't a second-class member of the Trinity. In a way, I, I don't like the term the second person of the Trinity. Have you heard that? The first person of the Trinity, the second. Uh, like the Father is the first member of the Trinity, Jesus is a second, and the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. That's not written in the Bible at all, is it? So Jesus isn't a second-class member of the Trinity. So Jesus is a picture of the man or the husband laying down his life for the woman or for his wife. But Jesus is also a picture of the woman submitting to the man. Isn't he? Jesus is a picture of how a woman should submit to the man. And we we see that again in verse 3, don't we? But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. What does that mean? Even Jesus Christ, even Jesus, God the eternal son, had to submit to God the father. Jesus is equal with the father, isn't he? Jesus is equal with the father, but he submitted to the Father's will. And woman is equal with man. Woman is equal to man, but she submits to the man just as Jesus submitted to the Father. And even our common sense tells us a submission is a good thing, isn't it? Could you imagine a world without any authority structure and submission could you imagine a a family life without any authority structure or submission could you imagine if the children decided everything (laughs) this is uh, what we're spending the money on (laughs) this is where we're going on holiday it's like legoland every (laughs) every year whatever isn't it it's just chaos isn't it absolute chaos and in employment as well isn't it Um, like the army could you imagine if everyone was equal in the army like you turn up to the army well so I'm a private yeah you do whatever you like (laughs) isn't it no you've got private then you've got lance corporal then you've got the corporal sergeant yeah until eventually you get to the queen don't you pretty much is it (laughs) there's a there's a there's an authority structure and the same with the roads as well. We're to submit when we're driving, isn't it? You're to give way. Could you imagine when I see a give way sign? I'm not doing that. I'm just going to drive through. Or at, at roundabouts, isn't it? It's like you're to submit, you know, give way to the right, isn't it? The traffic on the right. Oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to pull out in a roundabout, isn't it? It'll be a mess. It'll be chaos. It'll be carnage. No, an authority structure and submission is good. So practically, what should we do in light of this message tonight? Before we come on to the answer the question next week, whether I should wear a cap to preach, or whether it's sinful for me to wear a cap to preach, and whether the ladies should wear a scarf over their head when they're praying. So practically, what should we do? We should look to creation and the cross to define our roles, not culture so important don't look at culture to define your role look at creation and look at the cross 
And practically, I'm speaking just for the men for a moment. We are to love, we're to sacrifice, and we're to lead, isn't it? The men are to be men. We're to take the initiative, aren't we? We're to pray for wisdom. We're to be gentle. We're to be respectful. But we're also to take the initiative, isn't it? As the head, we're to make the decisions. And the women then, they're to submit. Just as the church has to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the Lord Jesus Christ submitted to the Father. And that is peace and harmony and love and joy, isn't it? So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. In a way, we don't really care about the hats issue anymore, do we? <laughs> we don't really care. What I want, really, is this, isn't it? What I want is this, that the church looks like Jesus. Jesus submitting to the Father, and also then the church sort of submitting to Jesus. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it?